something that was unbeatable, that wasn't supposed to be beatable, kind of beating the house. So, you know, you're not supposed to win betting sports. The house has an edge. I was always fascinated by that, just like with blackjack, with any form of advantage play. It, it always just fascinated me how I could turn that house edge, bring it over that net, that zero point, and then bring it into the positive in my favor. And that was the big thing. It was the challenge. I didn't do it for the money. I didn't even think about the money. Uh, when I started doing this, I, I didn't pull any money out until years after. So I, I just kept money rolling in. I was posted up everywhere. I didn't realize any profits for years. I just wanted to beat the game. I, of course, I wanted to make money, but I wanted to beat the game. And I felt as if I did a good job and if I if I loved it, um, the money would eventually come. And it, it definitely did. But you got to love what you do, obviously, and then the money will come. You're listening to Risk of Ruin. I'm John Reeder. This is The Frontier, Part 1. Probably my favorite part of making this show is that I get to talk to people who are delightfully not normal. For example, I talked to an economist who set up a craps table at his business school. One guest was homeless, hitchhiked to Laughlin, then became an advantage player and was never homeless again. I've talked to dumpster diving hedge fund managers. There have been people that left Wall Street to play poker, and also people that left poker to go to Wall Street. I heard that one of our guests has never received a W-2 in his entire life. A handful of the guests went to Ivy League schools, and then became professional gamblers. We've had people that got rich, trading stocks, options, and commodities. Also, our guests have made money from casinos in far-flung places around the globe, like Malta and Poland and Cambodia. One way to describe this podcast series is to say that it's about the type of people who push boundaries. They find the limit of where things are well-known or well-established, and then they go barreling past that point. So they are often operating where unknowns abound. You could also say that our guests are pioneers in the basic sense of that word. And the domain they operate in is the frontier. Their edges are going to come essentially by definition from the unsettled corners of the universe. To get at this idea, I'm going to play a clip from the episode titled Inside Long-Term Capital, which tells the story of the rocket ship hedge fund that started with a couple of billion dollars in 1994 had amazing results to the point where they were managing about $7 billion at the end of 97, and then it all fell apart during a particularly bad month in 1998. This is LTCM partner Eric Rosenfeld. At this point, we know we're going under. Bear Stearns has already informed us they're not going to give us access to any of our positions or cash after, uh, after Wednesday. So by definition, if you can't move cash around, you can't make margin calls, you've gone under. So Thursday morning, if nothing happens, we're going under. And let me tell you, we've thought about that now for the last, you know, three to four weeks. And we know that it's going to be a catastrophe. Forget about, you know, whether we still have a business, forget about our own personal capital that we have in the fund. That is long gone. It's not even close. We're more worried about the wherewithal of the financial system. We did not want to be the ones 
that take down the entire financial system. It's fair to say that out of the guests we've had on this show, none have had the success that LTCM had in the mid-90s. And it's also fair to say that none of the other guests have had as hard of a landing as LTCM did in 1998. So it's an extreme example, but it also contains some elements which are common to all of our stories. The most important of which are, I found an edge, it was incredibly valuable, and now it doesn't work anymore. So we'll come back to LTCM, but we have a lot of ground to cover first, and we are going to start, as we often do, with Blackjack. Blackjack reduces the idea of an edge to something that's easy to understand. If you've played the game, then you can understand how it would be helpful to keep track of the remaining ratio of high cards to low cards. Luckily, one of our guests was the inspiration for the movie 21, which tells a fictionalized story about the MIT Blackjack team. This is Jeff Ma. Largely, whenever I've ever talked to people about it, I always tell them, like, it's something I could teach you in 45 minutes. Like, we could sit down and I could teach you how to do it. You wouldn't be able to play in a casino yet. You'd have to practice and practice and practice. But I'm a big advocate in saying that there's nothing complicated about it. It's not rocket science. You don't have to be, uh, you know, like, I, and I even say this in the speeches I do, you know, you don't have to be Rain Man to do it. Like, it, it's, it's especially what we did which is the simplest form, you know, high, low, you're basically just tracking cards and, you know, counting plus minus one. So if you can add one to any number or subtract one from any number and do basic division and multiplication, you're good. I, I definitely would never say that I am any sort of like brilliant mathematician because of my ability to play blackjack. And I've, you know, I've said it many times, like I could teach anyone how to do it in 45 minutes. You just need to go practice and practice and practice, which is ultimately why I think it's such a cool thing because it's like anything else to be really good at it. You just need, it needs to be hard work to get good at it. Today, you can learn to count cards on your phone, but some of the guests learned when resources were scarce. Tommy Highland said he read a book, but the book left out this very basic detail, which would be like the first thing you'd learn on YouTube. At the time, like Revere's book, uh, it, was, it was easy to understand. It was simple, but it didn't really tell you how to physically count. So I, we kind of thought that, uh, you know, it was too hard to keep the count yourself. You had to be some kind of uh, memory expert. I don't know what we thought, but we decided that we'd always sit at the same table and one of us would count the high cards and one would count the low. Uh, and then we'd, we'd compare everything, you know, compare after every round and then we'd, uh, have a running count. I mean, we'd, we'd uh, have a running count, and then we knew how to do the true count. But anyway, we started out like that, and uh, amazingly, we ran that $2,000 bankroll up to 8000 so we had 4000 apiece. And then we met these other two guys that were playing, and uh, then somebody said that you had to wait till the, everybody got two cards, and it would cancel out, and that's how you kept track. So we learned to keep uh, the count by ourselves uh, after a few months. And then we, uh, we met these other two guys and they seemed like really nice guys. They're about our age and we decided to trust them. And they all, so we all put in $4,000. Now we had a $16,000 bankroll and we didn't, you know, we didn't really know too much about, uh, you know, how you're supposed to run a team and anything. So we just put the money up every night. We went to the, we, we play all day and night. And then we, uh, like two in the morning, we go to this, uh, you know, kind of dangerous area of Atlantic City where the one guy had an apartment, we'd split the money up every night if we won or we'd, uh, if we lost, we'd, uh, you know, fix it up that way and we'd start again the next day. And we all, we, you know, it was like, 
you know, it was very, uh, you know, simplistic type of ring that we would, uh, all start at the same time and all quit at the same time every, every, uh, day. We were betting small enough that the, we were under the casino's radar. We didn't really worry about getting barred. Uh, you know, eventually we, you know, before the, right before the experiment, we did all, I think we were all barred and then, uh, they had to let us back into, uh, play for the experiment or whatever. The various card counting systems are almost beautiful in the way that they reduce the game's seeming chaos into arithmetic you can do in your head. However, the art of card counting, or maybe the craft of card counting, is a completely different story. The best practices of how to pull it off are not well established, and lots of smart people have tried over the years. This is Jeff again. When we first started doing, like, Collins. They hadn't really seen Collins in a while. It's not like Collins were, and Collins, just so people understand, are a spotter sits at a table or stands behind a table. They're either playing table minimum or not even playing at all. They're counting. As soon as the count gets good, they signal to a big player to come over. They pass the count off to the big player with some, usually a word, right? And it's like there's a code word that we use. They might not even like look at the big player. They might just say something to the dealer. Like, hey, do you know anywhere where they sell magazines around here? And magazine means um, 17. Um, and so, you know, they, they, because 17 was a magazine back in the day. It's just weird to even think that that was what we used for these, for these words. But anyway, so Collins were something that I think were definitely prevalent back in like Kenny Houston's day and whatnot, but they just hadn't seen them in a while. So I think we had like a pretty good time like it was just good timing for us to start doing the Colin game and i'd say for the first couple of years collins worked really well and then they started to really catch on to them and and to some degree like look for Mitsu entry or no no Mitsu entry and then all of a sudden we you know we had to like vary our game up so i think like as we more and more time pass we start to vary our game that we were doing call-ins or we would do a shoe game and a shoe game again like if you think about all these different games there's different betting progressions like in a shoe game you're betting a lot at, and you're, you're not you're usually betting a lot more at the end of the shoe Colin, you're betting a lot when you jump in and then if you do like cuts or you know something like that or you know nrs or you know like shuffle tracking you're again you're you can vary what your betting pattern looks like and that's sort of like the best way to keep them off your scent. You can even do things like betting big off the top of a, of a shoe when you know that's about a 50 50 uh, percentile to say, you know, just to cost you a little bit, but it, it, it does look better than dropping your bet a ton at the beginning of the shoe. Calling in a big player is maybe an attempt at an elegant solution. Today, the preferred strategy is more of the brute force variety. There are hundreds of casinos. So today's players are more likely to just play with little or no attempt to disguise their bets, then get kicked out, drive to the next place, and repeat the whole thing again. This is Joe, and he's talking about the daily rhythm of this nomadic lifestyle. So yeah, starts at noon, I go get go get some lunch or something like that, and then um, yeah, just either drive to the next place, or if I'm already there, you know, start playing until they back me off anywhere you know usually it's like three to four hours into it or hopefully longer but and then you just keep driving to the next place you know um break to get dinner at some point and then i usually play till about two or three in the morning and always book my hotel last second you know i'm always booking my hotel at like 11:50 p.m and so i just step away from the table to get a sense of like where i'm going to be so let's say i'm playing at a casino 
at 11.50. And I there's like not really any heat and it kind of feels like it's going to go on for a while. Then I'll just get a hotel like nearby. Um, but if it looks a little sketchy, then I might wait and just book it after. Because um, then I could drive for maybe an hour or two after to get to where I need to be in the morning. This is Rymo. He's also put in a bunch of hours on the road as a card counter. You go in with the intentions of playing a specific market. And next thing you know, you somehow end up hundreds of miles away from where your target market was. And it's because you got backed off. And then all of a sudden, they inform you that like, not only are they going to uh, back you off, but they're also going to fly you throughout the entire state of wherever it is that you're at, you know, and then all of a sudden, that basically limits the the casinos that you planned on playing on that trip. So now you have to drive further and further out. I, I remember one time uh, I was I was playing somewhere and I had I had such high hopes that I was going to be playing there for the whole weekend. I remember I, I even got my hotel. Uh, maybe uh, I got like two or three nights in a hotel and I paid up in advance. I get to the casino because I played there once before and I felt like they were pretty tolerant. And within 45 minutes, they had backed me off. And so I think I just, I, I was trying to be polite with them. I think I, I asked the, the woman who was backing me off. I said, so, you know, do you mind if I ask like, how far does news travel? Because, you know, I kind of wanted to know. And sometimes it's not a good idea to ask those type of questions. But sometimes you'd be surprised what type of answers you'll get in return. And so she said, uh, you're going to have to travel really far. You know, a trip where I was only supposed to be like five hours from home. I think I ended up being like nine or 10 hours from home or something like that. You know, I had a trip that was only supposed to be a one night or a two night trip. And it ended up turning into like a week long trip. It also ended up turning out to be like one of the worst trips I've had in my career too, where my monetary loss was just, you know, pretty large. And it was just dreadful because I was in the middle of nowhere I ended up running out of cash. And what really sucked was is I had like $25,000 in chips from like three different casinos. The problem is, is that all three of those casinos were all in opposite directions of each other. And they were all like maybe two to four hours away from each other, which was really annoying. So I had, it's, you know, I still had money on me, just it was in the form, you know, of chips that could not be used at the casino that I was really targeting. And I, yeah, that was, that was pretty bad. And of course, I mean, I think there have been times where, I have been stuck on a play, not for days, I mean, but like, um, you know, sometimes you find something and, you know, you think you're getting ready to go home or you think you're getting ready to retire to the hotel. And then all of a sudden you are now at the casino for like 12 hours longer than you expected. And you're like, oh man, this is miserable because I, all I want to do is just sleep and I just want to go to bed. But sometimes you get stuck on a play and in some cases you don't really even have an option to leave until the play is finished. Humans are by our very nature, inclined to fuck around and find out. Seriously, that's our preferred method to learn. It's like, why would you listen to the advice of a mathematician when you can just go see for yourself, learn the hard way, so to speak? Figuring out the right amount to bet is one thing gamblers love to learn through experience. This is Joe again. So when I first started playing and I had like the $5,000 bankroll, I was like practicing and doing like one by five, or sitting out to like two by 75 was my max. And then, you know, lost, lost my initial $5,000 bankroll because I just decided to like bet like two by 500 when I had the chance. 
And it was just like the stupidest thing you could have done because I didn't know anything about like risk of ruin or anything like that. So, you know, I, I saved up 10 to 15,000. I started over again and I knew now I knew how to calculate my risk of ruin and all that stuff. So I played a lot more conservatively. And um, eventually, you know, I started the bulk of my playing was maxing out at like two by 1000 at like a true four or true five. When I said that humans prefer to fuck around and find out, I really wasn't poking fun at Joe and the way he busted out of his first bankroll. The need for exploration and the need to question assumptions might be inherent to the kind of people we're dealing with. If you immediately trust conventional wisdom, then you're probably unlikely to end up in this line of work. To take that a step further, everyone knows that you can't beat craps. The dice are too random. Except, what if you could beat craps? This is Frank B., you know, the first thing I learned was blackjack. The first way, you know, advantage play I ever learned was blackjack. And I'm grateful that I uh, learned that because there's a certain um, one one right answer, everything else is wrong kind of thing about blackjack. And, you know, developing a, a, a system for beating blackjack, you always have the numbers there supporting you. There's a basic strategy. You learn that first. Then you learn how to track the deck and uh, ascertain the, the disparities within the, within the deck. Then you learn how to bet according to the disparities. Then you can, if you want, you, you can progress to other more uh, advanced techniques, but that are based on what you've previously learned, basic strategy followed by current cutting. They're all sort of grounded in that. Um, so when we tried to build a methodology for examining the craps, we tried to do it as blackjack-like as possible. It says, listen, we need, we need some base statistics here to start uh, – developing uh, what would then be a, a method of play, then a betting strategy and all that. Um, and so it's a long road to do that. Accumulating the data, that's the hard part. So we set right out on doing that as, as, you know, as efficiently and uh, objectively as possible. There is something really extraordinary about what Frank is saying in that clip, which I will rephrase in the following way. Blackjack taught him to be a scientist, right? We had this episode about craps, which featured Frank B., and an actual economist, and it was clear that even though one guy was a gambler and one guy had a PhD, they were both using a rigorous process. Also, when Frank worked on the Craps Project, his mindset was uncorrelated to conventional wisdom. He didn't just believe the skeptics, and he also didn't just believe hucksters selling dice-throwing seminars. He did the work to figure it out for himself. This is Dr. Robert Scott from the same Craps episode. Robert's idea was to create a repeatable role by designing a machine to do it. For initially, we tinkered with the machine. Then we had the high-speed camera come down, and that's when we uh, optimized it and said, okay, here's how dice throwers are throwing. Here's the height, here's the speed, here's the spin rate and everything. And we we um, dialed the machine into those specifications, right? And then we left it at those specifications for every roll, uh, for, for a, a ton of rolls. Um, and so we rolled a whole bunch on those sort of ideal settings and we didn't see any, you know, any uh, randomness. Then we started, then, like you said, uh, probably, you know, uh, in some ways where we should have started was we sort of said, is there a way for, you know, can we produce, you know, non-random events? And so that's when we really started messing with the angle and the speed and the spin rate and all those other factors. And so we, we tracked, you know, we would do, let's say, two or 300 rolls on a particular setting. And then we'd make an adjustment to the setting and do, you know, more rolls. And then, you know, we'd consistently address that. So we had exactly what the settings and the adjustments and the distance and everything were, and, and we couldn't, couldn't repeat it. 
This issue of do our guests reject convention or do they just ignore it is really interesting. I mean, obviously, there's no single answer that applies to all of the guests, but Daryl Purpose has known a lot of gamblers, and I like the way that he frames this issue. The common the common thread I see is the people that uh, were able to continue had this quality of um, not just not having limits. It's like it wasn't a, a, an assertive thing where I'm not going to, I'm not limited, you know. No, they didn't just even consider the concept of limits. They would go in and, you know, and I remember very early on, I was in Aruba, you know, and I just read the card counting books and I knew how to count cards and I knew why you did this or that. And I knew, I knew, I knew the numbers for, you know, 13 against a seven, you know, and I, knew, I knew the decision, point, you know, which people look back now and think is ridiculous, but you know, that's all I knew. But then, you know, you go, you play the game and you see things. And um, the people that continued and, and continued and, and did well were, were able to just look at a game objectively. They were, they were able to understand expected value, which most gamblers just don't understand that. They see the roulette uh, numbers and they think they know something about the next what's coming up next. And um, Sometimes you can do that, but they weren't doing it correctly. <laughs> and um, pe- these people understood the concept of random and non-random. It's so hard for most people to get their heads around that, including people that run casinos and deal these games. They just don't understand that. But we understood, wow, here's a, here's a non-random thing that the casino thinks is random. And the way I see it, that's how we grew out of card counting, because we found edges that were much, much bigger than card counting. Uh, just by by looking at a game, by watching it being played, by watching the procedure. Oh, now the dealer pulls that card and he puts that here, da da da. This and there's that rule that uh, some dealers maybe follow and some dealers don't, and uh, you know. I mean, that's how we do, you know, the people like, uh, people like James Grossgene and, and, and some others are, are so good that they just embody this kind of, this sense, you know, they can watch a game, any game, it doesn't have to be blackjack. They can just watch any game and just think, all right, well, what, what's non-random about this game that the casino thinks is random? And that's where it all starts. And so. If advantage players have unconstrained minds, what are some of the things they've found over the years? The things Daryl said could be discovered by watching procedures. Here's Richard Munchkin explaining a few of them. So counting cards is sort of the the very bottom rung of the ladder, right? That's, for many people, that's the very first thing they learn. It's the smallest edge. It's the most amount of heat from the casino. Um, the next rung up the ladder was shuffle tracking. Right. It it pretty much doubled your edge back in those days when the shuffles were really easy. Um and and shuffle tracking, uh, if you want a brief description, it's basically just uh keeping track of where packets of high cards and low cards are in the discard rack and then following them through the shuffle. 
and then being able to cut either the big cards into play or the little cards out of play. Maybe the next rung up the ladder would be sequencing, uh, where you're memorizing strings of cards so that as you see cards coming out, you know that an ace uh, is much more likely to be coming out within the next few cards. And so you memorize these strings of cards and then watch for them the next shoe as they're coming out and, and bet accordingly. Uh, anytime that you know the exact location of a card in pretty much any game, <laughs> um, you know, that can be, that can be an enormous edge. Now, you know, if, you've cut the card out of play, well, that's a minuscule edge that, that doesn't really help you, you know, but I mean, whatever the game, let's say it's Baccarat. If you know what the 59th card in the shoe is, that's a big edge, (laughs) you know? So yes, if you can cut a certain number of cards and you know that a certain card is 13 cards down, that's a really big edge. Some of the stuff we're hearing about doesn't exist anymore, or maybe if it does exist, it's very rare. For instance, this is Mark Billings, and he's talking about a way to spot the dealer's whole card that used to be common and now is nearly unheard of. Except it's not completely unheard of. So if there's one casino in the U.S. where it's possible, that place could be a gold mine. Spooking was another thing, back because in the old days, when the dealer had a 10-up, an ace-up as well, but a 10-up, the dealer would peek beneath it to make sure there wasn't an ace down there. Because if there was an ace down there, hand is over. Dealer flips up the ace. Everybody loses. She scoops your money, scoops the cards. Boom, let's get on to the next hand, right? And in peeking, a lot of dealers, I shouldn't say a lot, but some dealers would expose that card to either somebody behind on the other side of the pit or maybe off to the side a little bit. And so that was called spooking, and we did some of that too. I always find it very difficult to get across the relationship that our guests have with gambling. It's like, on one hand, they certainly spend a lot of time in casinos. On the other hand, they're not typically the type of people who enjoy recreational gambling. So, are they gamblers? Yes. Are they gamblers? Well, Mark says the answer is also no. We're not gamblers, right? So, we didn't do this for fun. We didn't do this because we wanted to. We did this because that was our job. So I wasn't saying, boy, let's go out and play. That never, I don't, I can't remember anybody ever saying that. It was like, there's a good situation here. We should go there and, and, you know, do some cutting or do some front loading or do some counting or whatever it may be, right? Nobody I knew who did this for a living did it for fun. This is Arnold Snyder. He wrote about shuffle tracking in the 1990s, and there are still APs using his work. Sadly, Arnold passed away recently. What I was really into by this point, I was totally into shuffle tracking. Shuffle tracking doesn't look like card counting. You just don't look like you're a card counter. You look like a gambler. You know, you often come out right off the top with big bets. You're not like starting small. And as the, and as the small cards come out, and, uh, you know, the, the count is going up. Now your bets are getting bigger. It's extremely easy for anyone in a casino to to spot a card counter if they're just using a standard card counting system. It's very difficult to disguise a card counting system. Shuffle tracking systems are just automatic disguise. They, you, your, your big bets aren't being placed because the count is high. 
and your small bets aren't being placed because the count is low. Your, you know, your bets don't seem to be tied to the count. So what they're looking for then is they're looking for things like, well, is he using a computer? You know, is, is he, is he somehow able to see the dealer's whole card is, you know, is he using some kind of device or does, you know what I mean? The things they're looking for, the other ways of, of say beating the, the games, you don't look like that either. Today, Kyle Bodie trains athletes using a data-driven approach. He's best known for increasing pitcher velocity, and he's worked with players you've definitely heard of. But 20 years ago, he was a professional gambler, and he was in a casino, and he saw something that wasn't quite right, so he went home and learned to shuffle track. I go home, and I, I just Google shuffle tracking. I'm like, I know it's a thing. I, I don't know what it is. And I just practice shuffle tracking. I have a shoe, I have a discard shoe, a discard tray, and I have everything at home to practice, right? And I've had that forever, just for counting, just because I like to work on that kind of stuff. I take pride in being a good technical expert in anything I do. And I'm like, I have to learn how to shuffle track. So I'm pulling out these articles from the 1980s, the 1990s. I mean, this is a dead art by what, 2000? I don't even know. Like, I don't even know. At no point had I ever seen anything like this. So it must have been a dead art in the 1990s, is my guess. So I'm reading like Ken Oston articles and just crazy stuff from forever ago, you know, and I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's boil it down to count decks, right? Like get a, get a sub count per deck and like track it every roughly 50 to 60 cards. Right. And if I can get sub counts per thing, then watch them cut. Then I can pick out the decks that have like plus nine sections. And when they shuffle it with a deck that's neutral, then I know that pile is plus 4.5. Right. And then make sure that they don't. And every time I see that, Manipulate the cut cards so they're going to cut to the front. So I have at least two to four decks of, of positive expectation off the top. Perfect. Like that's how I boiled it down and how I would track it is I would keep a stack of eight chips in front of me and I would have them all oriented the same way and I would shuffle them. Like I would cut them when they cut four decks, I would cut the four. When they cut to two, I would cut to two. And for per count per deck, I would just do a notch. So like phase of the clock. So the front of it, if it's 12, it's zero. And if I go to, you know, 11 o'clock, it's negative one. And if I go to the right, it's a plus, you know, and then I could look down and I could see the rough orientation of the decks. And then eventually I got so good that I didn't need to do that, but I would just count these pockets. And then the best part of shuffle tracking, of course, as anyone will tell you, is that you're just betting table max off the top. And that there's nothing better than doing that, right? Like the pit boss is never going to isolate you, right? So it's on table max, seven spots, like maybe one in 10, one in 20 shoes. And they're loving it. And I may have taken... I mean, this casino is in the middle of nowhere. I have to explain, you know, and I think the first day I won $21,000. And I think it like was literally probably their net theoretical for the entire month. <laughs> I just absolutely wiped out. And I beat him for, and of course you're running good, right? 21, you don't make 21 grand by being skilled. We both know that, right? So, uh, I have an edge, but what, what's my Theo? Three grand, two grand, maybe, right? That's cleaning up, right? I take him for 21. I go back. I'm like, man, I hope I lose five grand or something. You know, I'm not going to give it away. But like I smash him for 18,000 a week later. And it's like, oh my goodness. You know, fortunately I went back and lost a little bit back here and there, but I mean, I bashed him again really bad. And then the casino like closed like shortly after that. So I don't know that I was responsible for it, but anyone out there listening, you can Google it and find out that the casino has long been closed. I think that if you tell people that blackjack or any card game is beatable, they can understand that. If you say, Hey, the same math, which powers card counting, also support shuffle tracking, they can get that. And if you say that some games are vulnerable, if the dealer shows their whole card, that's also understandable. But 
I think that if you tell people the machines in the casino are beatable, that's where they'll kind of nod and say, sure, sure, isn't that neat? And they will think you're an idiot. Although we can use some of the same ideas to understand machines. For instance, you can calculate the house edge for any video poker game just using the pay table on the machine. Every combination of cards has a probability, so if you multiply the probability times the payout, you can know the EV of every hand and every action. And it turns out that some video poker games have a very small house edge. So if you take a house edge of half a percent and then add in marketing money, the game can go positive. Bob Dancer played video poker during the golden era, at a time when casinos were rapidly expanding in Las Vegas, and the marketing departments were doing whatever they could to acquire new players. When enough casinos restricted me from playing the blackjack promotion that I was feasting on, I went to Gambler's Book Club, and I was looking around to find a gambling game that I could learn and beat. I had already tried live poker and determined that that wasn't going to be my game. Blackjack didn't seem to be my game, so I was trying to figure out what else. Howard Schwartz, who was the owner or maybe manager of the Gambler's Book Club, suggested I look at video poker. So I bought every book, started studying and finding promotions, and gradually became better at it. I used a basic strategy that wasn't very good. Stanford Wong had been very good at blackjack, so I got his professional video poker, and that was about eight, five jacks or better progressive. So I learned that strategy well, but tried to apply it to nine, six jacks or better, which is similar but not the same. But as they say, when your only tool is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And eventually I meet people. Eventually I find software. Eventually I learn about promotions. And I was on my way. The MGM was a life-changing experience for me. And it didn't have to turn out that way. We didn't have to hit a $100 royal for 400000 We didn't have to be over-royaled. It just happened that we took a chance where the odds were very much in our favor, and we were fortunate along the way. So the combination of a lucrative promotion and good luck is it's a good time to get lucky. It was never, though, one promotion. It was lots and lots and lots of promotions. We got American Airlines miles for uh, in addition to our points. We got invitations to special events every month where just showing up had an average win of about $2,000 on average. We had all the the food and drink we could keep down. We got to stay in a place called The Mansion, which is the most luxurious hotel that I've ever been in. It was some um, great promotions. And sometimes after a while, they took off the airline miles, but it was still really great. The slot marketing person didn't have a clue as to math. She was arithmetically challenged and we took advantage of it. Do I wish it lasted forever? Yes, sort of, but nothing lasts forever. And all promotions end. Eventually, you're going to get kicked out. If you start winning at a casino, you're going to end up getting kicked out. That's just a fact of life. One of the more incredible stories we've heard on this show came from Mickey Krim. He was in Laughlin vulturing abandoned credits off slot machines. He had $5 to his name when he figured out that some slot machines are beatable. And the incredible thing is that Mickey has no formal training in math. He's self-taught, but he's doing the equivalent of a linear regression with all of the machines he plays. Well, the first thing I look for is progressive meters. 
Is there any progressive meters on it? If there are progressive meters on it, how fast are they running? In other words, what percentage of the of the wager is going into those meters? Now, if you find it running a half percent, like putting 50 cents per 100 wagered, or $1 per 100 wagered, on a 90% game overall, you know, that's pretty much guaranteed to uh, never go positive. Number will never get big enough to go positive. It'll hit long before it gets to a positive number. But if you find a 4% meter there, that changes everything. That's huge. That game has a chance to go positive before the jackpot hits or whatever happens, whether it's a bonus or whether it's a top line jackpot or medium range jackpot. Not all jackpots are top line, you know, with long odds like 100,000, 500,000. Um, a lot of jackpots got frequencies like 1,500 or 700 or 300 or 1,300. And, um, and with modern equipment where you're playing, you got a frequency, say, 1,300, but it's playing 20 games a minute. You know, you're not, you know, you're not talking about a lot of time to hit that jackpot. So I look for progressive meters and also look for banking features, something being accumulated. On a Keno game, one Keno game uh, that I used to play, it's kind of an old dead play now. When you would hit 7 out of 10, it would fill in an icon, one of five icons. And when you got all five icons filled in, you got the progressive meter. Well, you know, hitting a 7 out of 10 is a low frequency uh, or uh, a pretty short frequency. It's only like 621. But you have to hit five of them to get the progressive. Well, the trick to that is you don't play when it's five away. You look. You go through, you punch the machines up, you look more and more, more that's only one away or two away. And how much money is it? And is it an advantage point? Um, so, so something being banked. One of the old Odyssey games on, on the Odyssey machines was a game called uh, Buccaneer Gold. On it, you had to bank five daggers and a log to get a bonus. Uh, so the trick was you only played when you found three or four daggers already in the log. When you're walking by the machine, you punch it up and see how many daggers are in the lock. A lot of tourists will just get up and leave it three or four daggers in the lock. They run out of credits and leave, or they just don't care, or they got something they have to do, but they just get up and leave it. And then, you know, the knowledgeable machine pro, the guy that's looking to make the money, will only play those advantages that he finds. But a lot, a, a lot of these games are not that hard to figure out. It's pretty easy. There are a lot of fascinating paradoxes that can be observed in a casino. For instance, there are gamblers who say that you have to play by the book, and then these people just make up their own book. Or losing gamblers, maybe problem gamblers, you might say, who completely reject the idea that any game can be beaten, except they think that they're personally due. This is Ho Yi. He's an advantage player, and he found a promotion on a roulette game that flipped the advantage to the player. But it's the other gamblers in the story that are especially fascinating. I decided like, well, I'm already in this uh, country and I found good conditions in this city. Maybe I can find good conditions in some other cities. So I, I went to this other city and sure enough, I, first casino I come to, I see on their, they've got this like uh, flashing PowerPoint screen of their current promotions. And I see uh, roulette uh, special number pays 40 to one. I was like, 40 to one. Uh, there's gotta be some like catch to this. Like, they're not going to be offering this every day during this month. And so, you know, I, I talked to the, the croupiers and, you know, sure enough, they said, yeah, yeah, there's no limit. Yeah, you can play it as much as you want. And so uh, at this casino, it's a pretty small casino, but they've got two roulette tables. And so I'm just 
table matching this one number and running back and forth between these two tables. And I'm doing that for 12 hours a day. Uh, and I'm getting an insane amount of spins per hour because, you know, the, the dealers understand what I'm doing. I'm like tipping them a decent amount. And, you know, in this country, it's pretty uh, it's pretty unusual to get tipped at all. So, you know, they're all for it. They love it. And so, you know, I'm just stacking thousands and thousands of dollars a day on this promotion. You know, most of the day, like the casino is essentially dead. So I'm just doing it by myself, basically. But, you know, maybe like around six, seven o'clock, people start getting off of work and, you know, the casino fills up a little. And some so these floppies come to the tables and they're like, oh, why? Why is this guy only betting this one number? I'm just like, oh, no, it's my lucky number. But then the croupiers will say to them, like, oh, well, we've got this promotion. See, like this number today pays 40 to one. And the floppies will be like, oh, that's cool. But then they'll keep betting their regular numbers and they won't even put a chip down on the special number. So go figure that one. I played it the entire month and I made a pretty substantial amount of money at it. And I was, to the best of my knowledge, the only one playing it. I actually think about that story all of the time because it really shows that most people in a casino see the outcomes as driven by personal luck or a magic sequence of numbers or fate or whatever. I think there might be something else going on as well, which is the way to have better results as a gambler is to better understand the economics. And for most people, that's not why they're there. They don't want homework. They want an escape. We've had guests that have made a lot of money on promos. Zach White was part of a gambling team at Appalachian State, and they used online casino offers to build their bankrolls. These were things like sign-up bonuses, redeposit bonuses, and loss rebates. The, the whole online casino and, and bonus thing, like there was no other time period anywhere near that where it was just that easy. There was just so much dead money, uh, so much square money in the marketplace where the bonus money was tremendous. And, you know, I felt like a lot of times these operators knew what was happening, um, but they just didn't care because they were making so much money. At, at one point, we had run so many accounts through this one particular group where there was, all you know, the terms and conditions when you're signing up for this bonus they would always list certain countries that were banned and it would usually be like China, you know, India, Iran, like places that were either gambling was banned or they were ripe for fraud. And then one day at the end of this list, it said uh, it had all those countries. And then it said, or Boone, North Carolina, <laughs> under the terms and conditions of uh, ineligible players. And I was like, oh, man, I think we, we I think they finally had enough enough of us there. I love this story because these guys were serious about what they were doing. They approached it like a real business. And also, they were college guys. We started um, in this little office. We had one little room in the back corner of this office building. And I'm not sure what we told the guy to get on the lease initially, but he didn't really care. We were paying in cash, so uh, whatever. But eventually, we expanded. Um, as we grew, as, as this operation kind of grew, we, we ended up having like the whole back of the bottom level the whole back half of the bottom level of the office building. And the office building was two levels and the entire upper level was professionals. There was like a doctor's office, an accountant, uh, a lawyer, uh, like an acup- acupuncturist person. And like, so we'd be coming in um, after class, four or five o'clock in the evening, you know, carrying a box of pizza and a six pack of beer, you know, three or four guys at a time, maybe a couple girls that were hanging out. And these professionals would be coming down the stairs, leaving and like trying to figure out what exactly is happening in these back in the back end of this office building, uh, we got some very strange looks, and yeah, I mean, it, it was it was interesting. You know, we never put a sign on the on the front of the building that says, "Hey, people are gambling in here." <laughs> yeah. 
it was a good time. You know, we had uh, we had like a practice blackjack table in there, um, and obviously uh, the setups for the with the different internet connections, internet connections for the um, the bonus stuff, uh, couch in case somebody needed to take a nap or whatever. And and uh, you know, it was great. It was a great little office. Richard Munchkin also played these online casino promos, and he knew other people that did the same thing. Some part of the job was just the math to figure out the promos. The other part was like a social engineering task. They had to find friends and family who were comfortable giving up their names to businesses domiciled in God knows where that took deposits through services like NetTeller. I knew a guy who was at Berkeley and he would sign up people at school and he'd be like, give us your ID and, you know, within two weeks, we'll pay you $400. And, you know, he would crank through within two weeks. He would sign them up, collect the bonus, collect the money, done. And he would average about $10,000 just in sign-up bonuses. He went through hundreds and hundreds of students doing that. And our approach was different. We kept our IDs and kept playing. And, you know, ultimately, by the end of it, every ID that we had was worth about $100,000. And and would have continued probably to earn money in the future had the the hammer not come down. This base idea that any business willing to spend on customer acquisition is vulnerable to being exploited, that actually extends beyond gambling. We've had a few episodes about credit card hustling, which is just signing up for new cards, getting more out of the sign-up bonus than you pay in annual fees, and then moving on to the next one. One thing that the credit card hustlers have in common with the Advantage players is that they are always looking for loopholes. This is Kai. As recently as I think a month or two ago, but when it first started, it was maybe early last year, there was a company called Stockpile and you can buy gift cards for stocks. So you buy a gift card and you can then redeem that gift card for any stock that you want. The interesting thing with Stockpile is that for a while, they were letting people buy these gift cards using credit cards, which like never happens because there's transactions fees involved with the company in order to allow you to use credit card transactions. But they were allowing it and it was allowed, they were permitting up to $10,000 per day of gift cards with a credit card up to a $25,000 annual limit. And I think that was when I found it. Before then, I think the limits were even higher. But essentially, you would just go and use one of the credit cards that you're trying to get minimum spend on. And if you think about $25,000, that's probably minimum spend on four or five credit cards. Like, you know, it's pretty common for a credit card to give you 100,000 points for spending $5,000, right? So four or five credit cards worth of spend, you just go buy a gift card and cash it in for like a really stable. ETF so that you don't lose money because the goal isn't for you to actually be in the stock market. It's just to buy the gift card, cash it into stock, then sell those stocks. And now you have cash that you can transfer to your bank account and pay the credit card. And so that was probably the easiest spend that I, I can remember in recent history of just five minutes of work. And you've got literally just five credit cards worth of bonuses coming in. As Kai says, a not uncommon thing for credit card companies to offer is something like get 80,000 points to sign up and pay $95 in annual fee. And let's say that the 80,000 points are worth about $800. Okay, so each account is like $700 in EV. 
Well, the people in the credit card game have the same idea that the online casino APs had, which is, I wonder how many accounts is too many. And you know what? I'm not going to take anyone's word for it. I may as well just see for myself. This is Nick Reyes. If you've ever been on an American Airlines flight, I'm sure that you've had a flight attendant try to sell you on the idea of opening an American Airlines credit card. And, um, and so that's something that many people do. And, and perhaps you've been on a flight before where you've heard somebody tell the flight attendant, oh, I already have that card. And maybe you've heard the flight attendant say, well, you can open another one. And uh, that's something that for many years did work. And there were some ways to exploit that in terms of uh, people getting uh, mail offers and signing up for accounts in their dog's name or, or neighbor's name or whatever it might be and, and getting mail offers and then using codes from those mail offers to open up a bunch of different credit cards. Uh, they were the same credit card rather again and again and again. And, uh, and eventually American Airlines decided that they didn't like the fact that they were helping to fund these large credit card bonuses for people who were just exploiting the system to earn as many points as they could. And so they began shutting down the accounts of people who had done that, engaged in that activity. And, and that particular example was one where uh, it was right around the holidays and suddenly people were showing up at the airport and finding out that their tickets weren't valid. One thing that I really like about Nick is that he has the kind of unconstrained mind we've heard about in this episode. If credit card hustling is a game, he's always trying to run up the score. And I should say that I've benefited personally from some of the stuff he's found. He figured out that Turkish Miles will let you book United flights for 7,500 points. So I actually did that and booked flights to Hawaii for 15,000 points round trip. Nick found that sweet spot when he was in a contest to see how far he could go on 40,000 points. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. That's a domestic flight from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii. Does it cost the same to fly from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii that it would from Washington, D.C. to Boston? I mean, that seems impossible, right? It seems like one should be much less than the other and one should be much more. The flight all the way to Hawaii should cost a lot more, it would seem. Uh, but sure enough, by by digging into those definitions and that kind of detail, I was able to find that, well, no, Hawaii was considered part of North America. And so it was the same 7,500 points to fly all the way to Hawaii that it would have been to fly anywhere else in the U.S. And so uh, by doing that sort of activity, I was able to take 40,000 points and fly from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii, to Tokyo, to Bangkok, to Brisbane, Australia, uh, to uh uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, by way of Nelson, New Zealand, and then to a, a tiny Pacific island called Niue, population of about 1,600 people that has two flights a week in and out. Uh, so a very remote place that's hard to get to and lots of tourists uh, end up getting there. And so I was able to take this relatively small amount of points and fly more than halfway around the world uh, by, by looking for those types of small loopholes. As long as we're at it, we may as well apply some of these promo ideas to sports. Not that long ago, you could sign up for accounts at places like DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesars, BetMGM, PointsBet, BetRivers, uh, Unibet, WinBet, uh, Barstool, Betfred, Sports Illustrated, and Twinspires. I'm sure I'm leaving some names out. Anyway, they would all offer free bets to get customers. And so if you multiply that list of names by hundreds of dollars per company, you can make a few thousand dollars with almost no work and without having to know anything about sports. This is Captain Jack. He's made money in various ways as a gambler, but he's going to kick off our discussion of sports. 
if you go to any recreational better, the, the sport they love to bet the most is the NFL. And the sport that is the most impossible to win at is also the NFL. Why do these people always seem to chase the, the highest branch in the tree rather than going for the lower hanging fruit? It's an epidemic, really, with, with people that are betting into things that like they, they just will never be able to get an edge. And, and then on top of that, they make their bets in a non-optimal way. So in other words, like they, they might bet like an eight team parlay rather than try to, you know, win just one or two individual games or limit their scope in, in what they're trying to approach. They, they look at trying to beat the, the hardest market and the one that they believe they'll be able to brag the most about to their friends. Uh, when in fact, you know, Winning at the WNBA is far easier than winning at the NBA, but nobody wants to admit like, oh, I'm, I'm a big better in the WNBA. You know, it's, it's almost like there's a, a bit of machismo involved when it comes to sports betting. And hey, the, the demographics bear it out. It's, it's a heavily male industry. A lot of these people are, you know, just in it for the, the bragging rights. And we see it with a lot of the media that's out there. It's, it's heavily focused in sort of that almost misogynistic view of, you know, how a sports better should be. It should be for the boys. It should be about, you know, betting on things to happen and betting on, you know, this team or that team or this guy or that guy. But really, no, it's about finding inefficiencies in the market. And right now, the biggest inefficiency in the market is that these sports betting operators in regulated states do not want to profit. They want to gain market share. They want to gain stock valuation. They're willing to spend three to $500 to acquire a customer. And, uh, you know, they're willing to give that money to some website where they refer you on to the sports book. My advice to people is no, don't, don't let somebody else take the three to $500 they're willing to spend on you. Let them give it to you, you know, maximize the sign up promo, maximize these boosts and promote promotional bonuses they offer on a daily, almost a daily basis. Go ahead and take your low hanging fruit. There's no style points awarded here. Uh, you know, money you earn from getting some ridiculous promotion is spends the same as money you earn by spending f- 48 hours in a week pouring over the NFL lines for that weekend's games and trying to find a, you know a winner by a half a point. There, there's just so much money to be to be made right now that it's it's kind of foolish to focus on trying to reach for the fruit that's high in the tree. The NFL is probably a little like poker in the way that it's easy to win over the short term, but over the long term, all of the money that comes in is like chum in the water for sharps. So over time, the line gets sharpened up to the point where it's pretty close to a coin flip. And if you take a coin flip and add a house edge, that's a tough way to get ahead. Here's Ray Marino. He was a better in the early part of his career, and now he works for a sports book. I think their biggest issue is just not understanding the whole the whole concept. What I mean is, um, especially in today's marketplace, anything the recreational gambler can possibly think be thinking is a reason to bet side A or side B is probably already factored into that market into that line. Um, so unless they're doing something out of the ordinary with you know with metrics. Um, Anything they think they know about, oh, this quarterback or this, that, 
it's already in the market. So you're just betting it into the VIG. I think the biggest misconception is that there's a crystal ball for this. There's winners and losers. There's a winning side and a losing side. And and I don't think many of the gamblers understand and it's all about a penny here, a penny there, you know, um, finding ways to indirectly or directly cut into our VIG. Whether it's, I think the best way is having multiple outs and always taking the best number. That in and of itself, I think, certainly cuts down your loss quite a bit. You know, um, you're indirectly cutting into the VIG like that. You know, you can also cut into the VIG by understanding if a game line's X, that the first half line should be Y. And picking the best of those two when make, when making your bet, you know, and whatnot. Um, so, um I just don't, they just don't see the whole picture. They think there's either a winner or a loser. You, you, either side A is the right side or side B is the right side, no matter what happens. And I don't think they, they understand variance and that, and just how efficient the market actually is, especially in the biggest sports now. Ray said that he got his start looking for places where the books had a fundamental misunderstanding of pricing. But we started with a really modest bankroll. So, you know, our main focus was just picking on anything that was super, super weak, all the derivative markets and whatnot. So the big money grab, I think we found at the time, this was, uh, I guess this was 2006, 2007, was um, baseball team totals. And uh, basically, they were just all too high. And the uh, the home teams were even higher because at the time, I don't think they were factoring that sometimes they didn't bat in the bottom of the ninth. At the time, I think they would just take a total of nine. And if the game was, assuming the game was pick them, it would be four and a half flat, four and a half flat. And you could just... You just blind bet the board under, basically. And I think all they were doing was just looking at a total and just firing in a number. They weren't using any databases or any actual data to come up with what these team totals actually should be. So that was one of the main things we picked on. There are sports bettors that spend all of their time looking for lines that are just slightly off. You know, if the entire market moves and there's one book that's slow to update their line, that might be an opportunity. In fact, there are services that specialize in helping gamblers find just this kind of thing. So keep that in mind as you listen to this next story. This is Jim Pascal, and he's talking about a sports book that said, no problem, we'll give you a point and a half, but you have to bet every game on the board. But he ran a sports book in Vegas, and uh, we were there every day. We would hang out, play horses, me and my wife and whatever. And, uh, that's, and, and I bet sports all the time, and... Basically, I get a, a kind of an edge because I'd used the penny line moves and they were slower there. Uh, and um, so, but we got, got to be friends and he was okay with that. Uh, and then at one point, something strange was going on. The uh, He'd stop all bets for like a period of time. It could be 10 minutes or more. And I saw somebody, one person would be at the window. Now, this pro- I'm not sure this was, would have even been okay with the gambling commission at the time. But anyway, it went on. So after a few days, I asked him, uh, what, what's, what's going on? It's something strange. He says, well, I got a great situation. He says, these people, and I think it was college basketball, almost positive. Uh, these people would promise to bet good amounts on every game if they could get a point and a half the best. It could have even been college football, but that would be seriously ridiculous. But anyway, it was it was situation they promised to bet every game. So I said, well, I call him by his name. I said, well, why do you think this is so great for you? 
Uh, I says, are you sure you're on the right side of the, the bets by being moved a point and a half? I says, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're actually not. He So his comment was, well, it wouldn't make any difference because the volume would make up for that, right? So he's thinking that somehow magically, like if you multiply negatives together, that a bunch of negative equity bets for him would, would obviously turn into a positive. So I had to go through the math with him, but that would, and here's a guy that was well recognized as, uh, uh, articles he would do for the weekly, um, and different things. And it was, uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny that he actually thought that a bunch of bad equity bets for him would be a positive. So. Jim was a math teacher before he became a gambler. Then his son, Dan went to UCLA to become an actuary before he also became a gambler. So it's not surprising that one edge they found involved knowing a little about probability. Here's Dan Pascal. The first thing that came to our attention was a simple correlated event. Is was the World Sports Exchange was one of the first online sports betting sites, and they had a thing which is called the Grand Salami, which was the total number of goals scored in the NHL in a day. But they were letting you parlay the results of individual games to that. And on a day where there's very few games, you can see instantly that there's a huge car. To take into the extreme, a day where there's two games, if both games go over, then the Grand Salami is going to go over. So that was when we first realized, oh, this, you know, that was the first taste of internet books not doing what, not locking out what they should, not pricing things the way they should. A pretty reliable way to get an edge in almost anything is to just get information you're not supposed to have. This is Spanky. There was a time before Twitter, before anything, where we would call, um, you know, school athletic departments. Um, and we would pose as the school newspaper. You know, there were times in which we've actually, you know, I've had the head coach of teams on the phone um, asking how practice went today and, and if somebody's expected to play or not. There were times in which we would call the school newspaper and oppose as alumni, and usually the school newspaper would have a guy, would have a reporter that was there at the practice, you know, the sports writer for the school newspaper, and he would just tell me, and I would just pretend like I'm an interested al- an alum, and then saying that, hey, listen, how, how'd that practice go? Is, is Jones in today? Uh, is Jones going to be in on Saturday? And uh, he'll say, yeah, he looked good, or uh, nah, he was sidelined the whole time. You know, obviously, you never say, hey, I'm, I'm about to bet a lot of money on this stuff. No, you don't pose as a gambler. Mark DeRosa was part of the Appalachian State gambling team that I mentioned earlier. One thing I love about their story is that it shows how many different ways there are to win. They play blackjack, video poker, hustled bonuses, parlay cards, and also NASCAR. You could walk into a casino. I, I remember, so Matt Metcalf runs Circa Sports now, and... He was living in Vegas when I was living out there and he was working in a sports book, but he would also bet I would be out in the sports book and I would see this guy and it would be 730 in the morning and we'd be at Caesars Palace uh, when the sports book was opening up. We're the only two people in there on a Wednesday morning and we're both betting NASCAR for the limit. You know, they've got NASCAR on the big screen. Uh, the practice sessions are going on and there was a guy who was the the supervisor of the book at the time his name was dave i'd make a bet let's say on dale earnhardt jr and he'd look up at the screen and he'd say yeah dale earnhardt jr looks really good in practice that's a that's a good bet you know you you'd have 
the lines move from like plus 140 to minus 200 in the course of 20 minutes. I had uh, another time uh, the Plaza Sportsbook uh, was being run by Mike Colbert at the time. And uh, he went on to be um, running the sportsbook at the M Resort, which when when they were doing that, it was the biggest, highest volume sportsbook in the world. But when he was at the Plaza, same thing happened. You know, it would be like a Wednesday morning at open and... uh, you know, we would, I'd be in there betting, I'd, I'd bet $30,000 worth of NASCAR matchups in an hour and then leave. And I'd be in there the whole time with Metcalf there and he's doing the same thing. And finally, one day, Colbert asked me, he says, how come I don't write a single bet all week long? The odds have been up since Monday and I don't write any bets until Wednesday or Thursday. And then all of a sudden I write $100,000 or $50,000 in volume. And then I don't write any more volume until Saturday. He says, why is that? And I said, I don't know, man. I said, I have no idea. The reality of it was that's when the practice was going on and you could tell, you know, which drivers were stronger than the others. So it amazed me that that the bookies could sometimes could not see what was going on, whether it was, you know, a situation like that or whether it was taking parlay cards where every single team on the parlay card was, you know, two or three points off. The Appalachian State guys were partners for a number of years with Rufus Peabody. Rufus is known for being one of the top golf bettors in the world, and he's also known for using a model-driven approach. Before he became a professional gambler, he literally studied the subject like it was homework. So I did that internship with Las Vegas Sports Consultants in 2007, the second half of the summer of 2007. The first half of the summer, I actually spent doing a literature review on all the academic research in sports betting um, and with the eye towards how it pertains to financial markets. And so for a professor, cause I'd, I'd actually applied for this, like the economics department, summer research opportunity. And the, the nerd I was, I was like on my own stuff, like looking at like referee bias or something like that. And was talking, and I guess in my interview with this professor, he came across like, you know, my passion for the sports betting stuff kind of came across. And, you know, I mentioned I was going to Vegas and long story short, I wrote like a 90 page paper on the academic literature and sports betting, like, literally reading i read i feel like every paper that came out between like 1960 and like 2007 so it's my 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 knowledge when i moved to vegas was entirely academic rufus said that before he was a gambler he did a research project on sports betting his professor could see how passionate he was so now let's think about the idea of why there are any edges to be had in the sports market how can modelers like rufus make any money Keep in mind that today we have open source libraries for machine learning, lots of sports stats come in easy to download packages, and code academies have been flooding the market with junior data scientists for like a decade. There should be lots of people who can do what Rufus does. So why haven't they competed away all of the edges? I will speculate that the answer is attention, or maybe you could call it obsession. If you take someone who is really interested in a problem, they will get to solutions that don't occur to someone who is merely technically proficient. There are people way smarter at math than me. I wasn't a math major in college. I wasn't a stats major. I was an economics major. So, you know, I'm not a computer science, you know, I'm self-taught coder, you know, very hack coder. And so I, I always thought for a while, I thought that it's just that nobody else has really tried to do this, like with nobody else with my background has really tried to do it. And, it, and if you got somebody who is a math person that you know decided to go into this field, they would be way better than me at it. And when my back, I think it was the 2013 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, 
we were tr- we we posted a, a job posting. Like I wanted to find someone else to do the same stuff I was doing. Basically, um, another person that was originating numbers in our group because I had a lot of my plate, you know. And and we wanted to expand into other sports. We wanted to build something for tennis, for example. We wanted to do something for you know live modeling for you know some major sports like the NFL and and NBA and. I ended up getting a bunch of resumes and interviewing people. And well, and before that, I gave them a challenge because I thought that the, the best way to find out if someone's going to be good at something is to actually give them that type of thing. And I had, there was someone with a PhD in mathematics from MIT that applied. I think one of the challenge was to basically create a, or framework for a NBA win probability model, given the score differential and time remaining in the game. And I think the game, uh, the the pregame line. And this guy was talking about how he would uh, look at how like the Lakers had done in situations where they were up twelve in the fourth quarter before. And you know, it, it was it was like he's got this. He he clearly is way smarter than I am. And and mathematically speaking, like like has all these techniques at his disposable disposal that I that I didn't know. And and yet he just didn't understand how to look at the problem in a way that may, would, would actually get a solution that would be usable. My value is, is in a way, being able to just get stuff done and, and not being, it, it's, it's being creative and asking the right questions and having the tools to answer those questions. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Stay tuned for part two, where we'll talk about poker and also the financial markets. If you want to get in touch with the show, I will post a link in the show notes so you can find us on all the platforms. 